Hi guys, Happy New Year, and welcome to the seventh episode of Slashic Horror, and I am your host, Leroy Cross James. So, before I get into the movie I'm going to discuss today, which will be the 2004 gay slasher movie Hellbent, I want to talk a little bit about queer horror in general. Before I even heard of Hellbent, when I was a young teen, LGBT plus horror was something that it was not on my radar at all. Other than the queer subtext within movies I watched growing up, such as The Lost Boys, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, and Fright Night, I was naive enough to think that the subgenre was basically non-existent. Or rather, I didn't see the subtext or metaphors of queer identity in many films until later on. And I only mentioned films like The Lost Boys and A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and of course, there was the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I picked up on the themes and metaphors in that one very quickly as I grew up. But it was films like these that made me feel, and this this sounds really cheesy, and yeah. But it made me feel seen, and like I belonged. And it wasn't just horror movies I got that sense from. I got it from teen movies, John, Hume, John Hughes movies as well. But it mainly came down to some of the characters in, in those sorts of films, like the horror films, so... Yeah, it just it just made me feel like I belonged. It was only later on that I found films like The Hunger, Hellraiser, High Tension, just to name a few. And of course now there are a lot of queer themes I pick up on in horror films, released earlier than the ones I've just mentioned, by the way. And it's just a case, I think, of understanding. And it just came with age and maturity for me, I think. And I remember around the time of Hellbent's release, I saw an article on some website and then it started to pop up on several of us and it seemed to get the media's attention because it was a slasher movie that centred on gay men. So for me as a young gay teen, I was intrigued, especially because I was starting to engage in an interest in slasher cinema in general, but I was intrigued because it was explicitly labelled as a gay slasher movie. And I ended up watching it not too long after I I found out it existed. And I loved it for that reason, because it was explicitly gay. And it was 100% unapologetic about it as well. So Hellbent was released in 2004. And it centres on four young lads. Eddie, Chaz, Toby and Joey. Who go out on Halloween night in West Hollywood, where they are stalked by a muscular man who wears a red devil mask and carries a sharp knife. The opening begins by having two lads make out in their car in the woods, about to do the dirty, before they are attacked by the red devil and killed, or rather, they're decapitated. The opening scene plays on a standard horror movie trope with some ideas that come from the Lovers Lane urban legend, by featuring the two young lovers in a car in an isolated spot, who are being watched by a homicidal maniac. And, of course, in the Ebbing Legend, there's a hook involved, where, whereas there isn't a hook involved here, but it gave me that same sort of vibe when I watched it. And we as an audience know that being in the woods at night, in your car, intending to have sex can only mean one thing. You are fucked. Or, actually, they're not, because they don't make it that far, but you get the idea. 
And I think the opening lets us know what kind of movie we're in for. We know what to expect, more or less. And Hellbent as a whole is mostly formulaic in terms of the slasher subgenre. It's low budget, the acting's what you expect from a low budget film, and it follows some of the standard tropes of slasher films. But that's never a bad thing, especially in the case of Hellbent, because at the time, the execution was refreshing because of its characterization. And considering it was released post-Scream and before the slasher remake boom, it seems a little unusual that Hellbent did decide to play it safe in regards to the formula, but nevertheless, it's a classic way of telling a slasher story, and it works, and it works well in this case. So, after the murder of the two young boys in the woods, Eddie, a technician at the local police department, is asked by his boss to hand out flyers about the murder in the community as there is a carnival taking place that night, and they want the community to be vigilant. So, working for the police force seems to be a family event, as Eddie's sister's a police officer, and his dad, who is deceased, was also a police officer as well. And as it's Halloween, Eddie dresses up in his dad's old uniform while he hands out the flyers, and this is where he spots bad boy Jake, who is smoking outside at a tattoo shop. Taylor's oldest time, eh? And awkwardly, he tries to flirt with him, which does not go well. So Eddie is Eddie's the central character of the film, and he's this hellbent version of a final girl, or rather a final character. And as a lead, I think he's quite adorable in the sense that he comes across like he's stupid and naive, but he's far from that. Um, he seems to act as the moral voice of reason in the group, and he's the most sensible one out of the group, but... But rather than feeding into the stereotype of the final character or the final girl, I suppose Eddie's semi-virginal in the way he's portrayed. So it does play on that trope a little bit, but obviously he's far from that as well. Then next we have Eddie's best friend Chaz, who is bisexual and seems to be up for a good time. Then we have Joey, the twinky young one of the group, who decides for Halloween he's going to dress up in BDSM gear which he lends from Chaz. And then we have Toby, who is an underwear model that has dressed up in drag. Something I wanted to mention, actually, is with the characters, the way that they dress for Halloween, they're dressed, some of them are dressed as stereotypes, and it's stereotypes that are the opposite of who they are. So, for example, with Joey, he dresses in the BDSM gear, Whereas he seems to be sexually inexperienced and quite naive and nerdy and a bit of a hopeless romantic seeing as he's lusting after this guy. But what I find quite sweet as well is that his friends seem to look out for him throughout the movie and they always want to make sure that he's safe, especially Eddie. Like Eddie acts as a sort of surrogate big brother to him. Um, and dress, obviously Toby dresses up in drag so he doesn't get any male attention while he's out. Which, when he doesn't get any at all, it actually depresses him and, spoiler alert, leads to his demise later on. And, obviously, Eddie being dressed as an officer, which I think that's only there for backstory, to be honest. I think it's there to be a reminder of what he can't be because of a disability that he has, which I'll get into later as well. So, basically, what I'm trying to say is all these characters are really well-developed in this film. And it just seems that they, they've been really thought through, well thought through, and they're all likeable as well. Um, I mean, if we count in Jake as a lead, 
I I have some issues with Jake, which I'll get onto later as well. But in terms of the the friendship group, I think they're all really likable characters. So just for shits and giggles, um, the four friends, the four main characters, decide that before the carnival, they are going to visit the place where the murders took place. Because why not? It's Halloween. I guess they want to scare the shit out of themselves. Um, bit sinister. A little bit grim, but there we go. And uh, they come across the Red Devil, uh, mistaking him for someone who is cruising them. And they decide to taunt him by flashing their bare asses at him. So even when they see that he has a knife on him, um, they still continue to do it. Uh, one of my favourite lines in this film, actually, is when Chaz sees the knife and he says, he's a, he says to him he's a kink of, kinky fucker, isn't he? Um, it always makes me laugh. Now, I will say, if I saw someone dressed in a mask in the woods with a knife, personally for me, instead of flashing my arse at them, I would just fucking bail, but each to their own. So, after this, they do proceed to the carnival, where things get bloody, gory, and sexy. Um, They end up in a leather bar, where Joey sees this boy that he has a crush on, and he gives him his number, but he shows a lack of interest, which is a little bit disheartening. Um, while Chad spots a guy to play with, he leaves Joey in the bathroom and the guy does come to find him and they make out and they decide they're going to get breakfast the next day and it's all very sweet, blah, blah, blah. That is until the Red Devil attacks Joey and decapitates him and I feel so sorry for Joey because I feel out obviously he's the underdog of the group and... He just seems like he just wanted to just wanted to have a good time. And yeah, he's the first one to get killed, which is pretty sad. Um, I do love the lighting in the scene, though. Like, it's all red in this bathroom. And um, it's very Argento in a way. And it makes the whole kill scene just seem hyper-violent. Um, and it just works really well as in terms of um, the visual. So... Not long after this as well, while Chaz has had his fill with every boy and girl in West Hollywood, um, he's dancing on the dance floor while in the club while heavy strobe lights are flashing on him. And this is a pretty cool kill scene as well, where the Red Devil just kills him while the strobes are going off and no one reacts at all to the fact that there's um, a headless corpse in the middle of the dance floor afterwards. Um, so... After this, Toby, who's annoyed that he hasn't had any action all night while he's been dressed in drag, he spots the Red Devil and remembers him from the woods, and he basically begs him to take an interest in him, um, going so far as to strip himself of his drag costume, and it's only then that the Red Devil does take an interest, and he takes his head clean off in one swift movement. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Eddie spots bad boy Jake again, and this time seems to gauge his attention. Now, I'll talk a little bit about Jake here. I don't know if it's just me, but Jake seems like the type of person that just screams serial killer. And, in fact, part of me expected him to be in cahoots with the killer by the end of this when, when I first watched it, because he just seems like a very dangerous sort of guy. And I don't mean that, like the whole bad boy vibe. I just mean some of his actions, especially towards Eddie, they're a little bit aggressive. 
Um, like skipping ahead here, later on when Eddie takes him back to his apartment, he gets very rough with him, cuffs him to the bed, and he won't let him kiss him. And half of me expected, if he wasn't going to be in coups with the killer, I thought that he was going to be um, a homophobic basher, basically, which would have really ruined the movie for me, so I'm glad that wasn't the case. But it just, that's the kind of conclusion I was drawing myself to when I watched the film for the first time because it just seems that Jake has that sort of personality. Um, I just think there's something very off about him as a character and it made me not like him at all. I mean, fair enough if he's, um, you know, into a bit of rough foreplay, but yeah, it just, on the screen, it just didn't come off that way to me, personally. But before all of this, um, Eddie and Jake go back to the leather bar to go and get Jake's bike, but um, it's swarming with police because somebody's found Jerry's body in the bathroom and when they won't let them in Jake decides that they're going to break in through the back and it's here that Eddie is chased by the Red Devil and he barricades himself behind the gate and the Red Devil puts his knife straight through one of the holes and it goes straight into Eddie's eye but Plot twist, it doesn't penetrate because Eddie has a glass eye, which is the reason Eddie can't be a police officer because of his disability. Now, I absolutely love this twist. It's also my favourite scene in the film. It's the scene that they use on the box art. It's the scene they use in the posters. And it just makes Eddie as a character very original and give him an original backstory. So even yes, the as a slasher film, it is very formulaic. It follows standard slash movie tropes. Having that backstory for Eddie, it just, it was so unexpected. Like, originally when that knife went through, I thought, oh my God, we're three quarters into the film and they've killed off the main, they're going to kill off the main character. Like, what the fuck? So it was a bit of a surprise to learn that that's why Eddie um, can't be a police officer and also as well why he can't aim properly, like, when he was at the shooting gallery earlier in the film as well. So, yeah, it just makes him very interesting. So, after speaking to the police, um, after they are chased by the Red Devil, uh, Jake and Eddie head back to Eddie's apartment, where, as I've said, they start to have sex, and then Eddie gets handcuffed to the bed. Uh, But while this is happening, Jake finds Toby's bloody ID on the floor, which earlier he showed to the Red Devil when he was stripping off his drag costume. And um, instead of not doing anything about it, he thinks nothing of it and uh, decides that he's more interested in having sex and goes to go and get a condom while he leaves uh, Eddie tied up on the bed. So he hears a noise and, yep, you've guessed it, the killer is inside the apartment. He stabs Jake, and the killer goes straight for Eddie, but Jake manages to knock him out. And Eddie gets his dad's gun, tries to get help, but they're locked in and he can't find the keys. And he also discovers the heads of Chaz, Joey, and Toby. So he discovers his friends are dead. Now, the climax ends with Eddie and Jake trying to go out the fire escape, where the Red Devil attacks Eddie, and (laughs) this bit's really gross. Um, it just it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, he sucks out his glass eye, and it makes him drop the gun below. But Eddie manages to retrieve it, 
and tries his best to shoot the Rev Devil, but ends up shooting Jake first, which I find quite funny. Um, only because of the fact I don't like Jake. Um, but before he finally gets a perfect shot, Eddie has to concentrate on his aim, and he finally shoots the Red Devil, and seemingly the Red Devil's dead. Him and Jake finally kiss, and ah, it's all very happy. Until the last shot, which is, it turns out the Red Devil's alive, and he is holding Eddie's glass eye between his teeth and grinning, and it's a really disturbing end to the film. (laughs) But yeah, there we go. That is the end of Hellbent. However, Eddie, Eddie at the end, before before the film finishes, he also he requests to see the uh, the Red Devil's face, but the police officer says he's messed up underneath the mask, which suggests to me that that might be his motive. That he's maybe got this. Um, deformity or maybe he's not good looking or I don't know um, and that's what I love about the devil as a killer in this movie because we we know absolutely nothing about him we don't know the motive we don't know who he is we don't know why he's targeting these boys but it makes for some pretty interesting theories and the most prominent trope in this movie to me is that sex equals death or sexual attraction equals death and that seems to be when the killer does strike. And that goes not only for the main characters, I think it goes both ways. Because for me, I I believe that the Red Devil is, is a gay man who just has a fixation on um, gorgeous gay men. That's just my... my I think it's just as bl- uh, black and white as that. I mean, perhaps he was rejected by one of them in the past because of the way he looks underneath the mask. Perhaps he's hung up about sex and thinks it's sinful, which is why he's dressed as the devil. Maybe he's a homophobic killer, um, which is a theory that Toby comes up with when they're sitting in the car in the woods before they go to the carnival. Um, It's just, it, it leaves all of that ambiguous about the villain and it makes the film more intriguing and scary in that respect, I think. And that's why I like that it's a standalone film as well, because if we, if this had a sequel where things about the Red Devil were uncovered, it would just ruin that ambiguity, I think. It also has this interesting advantage to its killer, because essentially the killer is desirable. He's a sexual um, object. If we're looking at this through the male gaze, he's obviously he's topless and he has um, this Adonis-like body, which is why... Uh, Toby goes in pursuit of him later on because he remembers him from the woods. So it's kind of like, you know, this... uh, I've seen him described as a homme fatale. And that makes total sense. That's something that hasn't really been explored, I think, in slasher movies um, with, with men. So that's something that's quite original about the killer in this film too. So while the film does have an interesting concept, at times its low budget does make it look less polished than it actually seems. So I've noticed this in the past, like sometimes the audio is slightly off and the editing can look a little bit choppy if you look closely, but it doesn't take away from the viewing experience at all. It's by no means a perfect film, but it's entertaining and Upon its release, I was surprised to learn that it didn't make much money at all, as it seemed to be plastered all over like these media sites, and 
I guess that niche of it being an explicitly gay horror movie was a little bit ahead of its time, and there was only a select group who probably were interested in it and probably saw it when it was released, but... Over the years, it's obviously gathered a cult following, and it often makes the list of top gay horror f- films as well. So, uh, you know, it's it's lived on, its legacy's lived on, and I think that it's aged quite well too. I mean, some criticism that I do see the movie get is that it tells one narrative of one lifestyle of gay men. And, yeah, okay, so the cast, they are hunks, they're drop-dead gorgeous white men. Um, and I mean, it does go that extra mile with the film with being explicitly gay because before this, it the only kind of films that I think probably would be similar to this are the David Dakota films, so such as uh, The Brotherhood and um, Wolves of Wall, Wall Street, um, those sorts of films. So obviously, the films where we have these uh, very attractive. Uh, men who spend a lot of time in Calvin Klein's and white socks and um, occasionally rub themselves down, um, especially in Voodoo Academy, if I remember. Um, and it kind of, ha- in a way, it does kind of have that vibe to it as well. But it, instead of it being homoerotic, it's fully homosexual. And yeah, I can understand why there is some criticism criticism about it. it it does tell one narrative, but it's a narrative of gay lifestyle. And I think that's something to be celebrated personally. I think the fact that it does even address homosexual LGBTQ plus life in general, whatever aspect of that it may be, I think it's something to be celebrated with this film. I mean, surprisingly, not a lot of politics come into the equation in the movie, and there isn't, in my opinion, there isn't any homophobia present in 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 Hellbent, and I think that's a good thing, personally. I mean, yeah, okay, we we know, especially for two thousand and four as well. Like, obviously, this was was quite a progressive film in that in that sense, but. Um, I mean, although he, after he's attacked by the Red Devil, Eddie doesn't want his colleagues to know that he was attacked because he doesn't want them to think that it was a homophobic attack. He didn't want that to be the case. I don't know if it was just meant to be more... I don't know if it was meant to be more deep-rooted than that, that comment. And obviously there's the Toby's comment about um, him thinking that the killer might be homophobic. And But other than that, yeah, it just... There's no, um, there's no homophobic underlines in the film. And... It just seems to embrace the fact that these characters happen to be gay. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, bring any of the politics into it. And the reason I think that's a good thing is that it just makes the film, it, it shows them living their life as normally as they can. It's obviously very community based, as I said, with that that narrative of like they seem to live in a community. Um, surrounded by other gay people as well and it just seems very um very boxed in to that sort of world that they're in so it's like that safety net and then by having this killer come into that that's that's the threat of the film the and i don't that's why i don't think having any of the homophobic politics come into it is necessary because we've already got the threat of a killer who we know nothing about and i mean i must say that i'm surprised as well that 
Hellbent did inspire some gay slasher movies after its release. Very, very low-budget gay slasher films, but I'm surprised there wasn't any that were more uh, more well-known or maybe did want to um, bring to light some homophobic or political issues. But a good example of a horror, um, a horror film that does do that, a gay horror film that does do that, is 2019 Spiral with Jeffrey Bauer Chapman and Lachlan Monroe. Um, it's really good if you haven't checked it out. It's available on Shudder at the moment, I think. So there's one that you can check out um, in terms of um, how homophobia plays into horror. I mean, with horror in general, we are at the point now where we are seeing characters that are inclusive. So we are seeing, we're seeing more gay characters, we're seeing more trans characters, we're seeing more non-binary characters. And I think that's great because it it's less about excluding them and being inclusive by putting them all together in one movie but if I'm being totally honest I would love to see more mainstream gay horror or slasher films I think 2022 we're ready for that we've been ready for that for a long time I mean Hellbent was 2004 and you know that was many many years ago now and yeah okay we have some low budget ones but we could do with some that are a bit more um, more out there, more more well-known, more mainstream. So I hope that is something that we do see in the coming years. Absolutely. I mean, we did just have the Fear Street trilogy films on Netflix, which the main character of that was gay. And I, I just hope that we have more horror films where that is featured and you know it's we don't just have the uh the the gay best friend or the gay supporting character or the gay character who gets killed off um you know having a a front and center main gay character was fantastic especially for a a ya film and yeah i just want to see more progression with that in future with horror so just before we wrap up i asked you guys this week on instagram what's your favorite queer horror film or favourite queer moment in a horror film. And the first one I've got here is from Brooke Horror, who runs Autopsy of a Horror Movie Podcast. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, please do. It's brilliant. And he said, uh, Bride of Frankenstein is a great queer, co- quoted, uh, queer coded film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also think James Wales Frankenstein in general um, is queer coded. Um, I actually wrote an essay in uni about Frankenstein. Uh, and James Whale, and there's definitely some um, queer subtext to that. Um, yeah, so I totally agree with that one. Jason said, "Mine is either the greases in Friday the Thirteenth Part Five or the sheer queerness of the cast in Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. Yes, absolutely. Um, dubbed as Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think some of the characters in general in the, the later sequels of Friday the Thirteenth, um, they definitely have, um, you know, there's definitely some queer characters and queer vibes from them." Um, even just down to their their fashion sense and the way that they act as well. So, yeah, I totally agree with that too. Um, I have one here from Sarah, and she said The Hunger. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Classic film. Um, David Bowie, Susan Sarandon. Um, And someone said... Who's this? Oh, Mikey. Okay. Um, Mikey said, um, not a film, but um, American Horror Story Hotel, uh, Lady Gaga's The Countess. Yeah, 
again, funnily enough, I think that the Countess was inspired a little bit by um, Catherine, is it Catherine Deneview from The Hunger? And also Elizabeth Bathory, who um, is said to have bathed in the blood of young women. So, yeah, there's definitely a uh, definitely a queer sort of aspect to the Countess in American Horror Story Hotel. Um, uh, Steve said, um, the Brotherhood. I think most of David Dakota's um, entire filmography could probably account for being queer or at least homoerotic. Um, like I said um, earlier, if you watch a lot of his films, most of the men are probably wearing Calvin Klein underwear or white underwear and they wear white socks and they seem to rub their bodies or um, their bulges quite a bit. So yeah, absolutely 100%. But yeah, I like The Brotherhood. Um, I actually have only seen the first three Brotherhood films though, so maybe I should check the others out. Um, but yeah, no, just, yeah, I think David Dakota in general, um, he is a, um, a queer horror cinema icon. Um, even even um, though they are low budget, I think that he does have that, that following for that reason. And the last one I have is from Jack, and he said, have you seen Chillerama uh, segment, I was a teenage werebear? Yes, I have. <laughs> I completely forgot about that until you mentioned it now. Um, so yeah, I was a teenage werebear is a segment in Chillerama that stars Brent Corrigan, who was a gay porn star. Um, I think he's credited by his real name, which was Sean Paul Lockhart, I think. Um, and um, he plays this Twinkie jock that transforms into a a gay bear when um, he gets bit by one, I think. There's musical numbers in it. Um, he dances around in a jock while he's singing a musical number. It's very camp. It's very gay. And... Um, I believe it was directed by Tim Sullivan, who is um, a gay director. Um, he directed 2001 Maniacs with Robert Englund as well. Um, but yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I'm going to have to watch that again. It's been years since I've seen that, actually. Um, and if you haven't checked out, guys, please do check it out. It's really funny and really camp. Okay, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, this week's commentary on uh, Hellbent. Um, I really enjoyed talking about it, um, and I enjoyed rewatching it. I have, I actually hadn't seen it for a couple of years, so it was, it was really fun to watch it again before I did this episode. So, yeah. Um, if you haven't seen Hellbent, please check it out. Um, I believe it's on Amazon Prime through um, Here TV at the minute. And, um, yeah, um, if you guys have any questions in general, um, don't forget to follow us on at Horror on Instagram and Twitter. It's the same handle. Or you can follow me, Leroy Cross James, at Leroy Cross James on Instagram. All right, guys. Well, until next time, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you on the next episode of Slashic Horror.